I spent the last week in San Francisco. I went out there to work on my Pandora radio show, Country Built, which you can hear at pandora.com slash country built. But I did a lot of work on that. I got to go to the home of Sylvie Simmons, wonderful, wonderful writer, journalist, music historian. I really wish that I had the time to do something for this show with her. She's so knowledgeable and has so many great stories, but that might be somewhere down the road. But I had just a great week. In my downtime, I ran all over town best that I could. And I went to City Lights Bookstore, and I stood on the corner across the street where Peter Case sat and did some busking with Allen Ginsberg, for those of you who heard that episode just a few weeks ago. And when I was inside City Lights, I was looking around for Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I was probably going to be a fanboy if I saw him. So I've always uh, been, I've been a big fan for a while. I was going to do my best if I ran into him not to say, what could she say to the fantastic Fooly Bird? And I'm afraid to some of you that might make sense and the others have no idea what I'm talking about. But while I was wandering around San Francisco, I ended up finding the house of Neil and Carolyn Cassidy. And uh, that's the house where Jack Kerouac used to live in the attic. And I could see the upstairs window that he used to look out of. And he'd written on the road while he was living in Manhattan. But he moved out there with them and was doing revisions on, on the road. Those revisions later became Visions of Cody. It was pretty great to get to, to see that and stand there and take it in. And I was staying in this neighborhood called the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin District, which I'm sure a lot of you know is a, a very run-down area of San Francisco. It's a little bit rough, and it's surprising that anywhere in San Francisco can be rough as expensive as it is these days, but somehow this neighborhood has resisted gentrification. And I really liked the Tenderloin a lot. It was very seedy and gritty, and I enjoyed that, but I could do without the human feces on the sidewalks and the smell of urine everywhere. Little things like that kind of, you know, bring a neighborhood down a little bit. But just a block away from where I was staying was Wally Hyder's studios. And there's just so many great albums that were recorded there. You know, Creedence recorded Cosmos Factory there. Neil Young did Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. The Dead did American Beauty. You know, Graham Parsons recorded Grievous Angel. And uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash did Deja Vu. Tom Waits did The Hardest Saturday Night. And Van Morrison recorded Tupelo Honey there. It's just amazing that that much stuff could take place in, in one studio. I took a photo of the studio from across the street. And in the center of the photo was a man who just happened to be a drug dealer. And he was staring at me and he walked across the street and was not happy that I took his picture, and I had to explain to him that I was a bit of a a music nerd, and it was a historic location, and I told him the things that were recorded there. And luckily, this guy was a Tom Waits fan, and he thanked me for letting me know that the heart of Saturday night was recorded there. Of course he was a Tom Waits fan. But it was also a block away from the Blackhawk, which was a legendary jazz venue. So many live albums recorded there. Just so much history, and and now it's a parking lot, sadly. But also another block away was the Cadillac Hotel. And when Muhammad Ali, you know, came back from the Olympics, he was broke, had nowhere to stay. And the owner of the hotel let him stay there for free. And there was a gym downstairs where he would practice boxing and, and get much better. 
And I stayed at this hotel. It was a little bit infamous. It's called the Phoenix. The guy at the front desk had more rock and roll debauchery stories than I could shake a stick at. And uh, he was telling me these tales of David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Kurt Cobain, Sean Penn, Johnny Depp, all of these people behaving badly over a long period of time. And my favorite story was the drummer in Green Day. I haven't the slightest idea what his name is. I don't know much about Green Day. But he once climbed to the top of this roof at this hotel, and someone threw him a bicycle up there, and he rode the bicycle off the top of the hotel and landed in the pool while everyone below and some drunken madness cheered for him. And it sounds like a fun day to be out there. And I thought, well, I need to get into the spirit of things. I need to live it up a little bit. So I started feeding these pigeons next to the pool every morning. And the people that worked there at the pool would ask me not to, but I ignored them and I did it anyway. I'm afraid that's about as debaucherous as I get. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Paul Griffith. Paul is a great drummer who lives right here in East Nashville. And you can find out everything you need to know about Paul at griftersguide.wordpress.com. Back when I lived in Indianapolis, before I moved down here to Nashville, I would drive down. And I remember going to see my buddy... Tim Carroll and uh, Paul would be playing with him and I remember thinking who in the hell is this drummer this guy is great and I don't mean the kind of great that's all flashy and showy I've never liked that kind of drummer but just the kind of guy that just works so well with the band is one of those guys that just has the ability to elevate a song and uh, since then I've become friends with Paul and Paul's nice enough to play on my last few records and he's just great to work with And he's probably on a whole lot of records that are in your collection right now. You know, he's played with Elizabeth Cook, Carlene Carter, Todd Snyder. I want to throw in here that a few years ago I was playing a gig in Harrisau, Switzerland. And I was sitting backstage. I was opening for Dan Baird and Warner Hodges. And they got into a random conversation about what a great drummer Paul is. And uh, I jumped in and agreed immensely. So you're doing something right if great musicians like that you know, are saying nice things about you on the other side of the world. But Paul has this great story, I think is a lesson. You know, if you do this music thing for a while, you're going to have some ups and downs and things aren't always going to go great. And you're going to get a little bit tougher in the process. I said, Paul, this would be great if you would come on my show and tell this story. And he was nice enough to do it. So I hope we can all laugh along and maybe learn a little bit about this music thing. 
Here's Paul Griffith. I'd moved to Nashville from Louisiana in 1987 and uh, been uh, hammering away at it as you do and uh, gotten some road gigs, you know, happening. Nothing much in the studio at that point, but uh, I managed to do some touring and uh, work with uh, uh, Carlene Carter and Joel Sonier, uh, Leroy Parnell I had been out with and uh, uh, it was a sad bus, the Leroy Parnell bus, uh, and I'd gotten... Uh, let go the whole band had gotten let go because we were not a sad band and uh yeah so there was there was a uh, perhaps more frivolity than uh, leroy uh who was in recovery at the time was comfortable with uh so um yeah it was uh traumatic i'd never been fired before from from anything and i worked so hard at it so it was a it was a blow uh but right on the heels of that a friend of mine was playing with bocephus with hank Williams Jr. He said that the drum seat was open in that in that gig, and would I be interested? They weren't even going to do auditions, you know. If I worked out, the gig was mine. And all I could think about was, you know, finally, you know, I mean, that was at the time, you know, that was going to be a paycheck as opposed to the sort of indentured servitude. That's a huge opportunity. It was a big opportunity, and I, you know, I was not really a rebel flag wearing guy, but at the time I was thinking if that could get me out of this apartment and into a real ho a home for my family at the time, that, then uh, uh, then I could probably suck it up and, you know, toe the line. I always thought it would be kind of funny, you know. And on top of that, and this is the best part, the opening act for the tour, for the Bocephus Bo tour, uh, was Leroy Parnell. So it gave me a wonderful chance to be like a really nice guy yet at the same time you know stick it right up his ass you know <laughs> uh, so to say i was looking forward to it uh would be an understatement so i worked really hard i mean uh you know it started you know i couldn't get anything out of the office and that's pretty normal out of hank's office eventually they sent me i think it was 17 or 18 cds uh, and at least eight live tapes. Uh, none of the CDs, no set list. I mean, there was no indication. It's just like, here's, here's two weeks worth of material. Learn it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, one of those things. So I really did. And I, you know, I, how, like, how could I write charts? Like, you know, wasn't, he doesn't make a set list. So I sort of had done a big board, like a big cardboard, what do you call it, poster board thing with some, you know, just some basic roadmap stuff for at least the most popular Bocifa songs, you know. For anybody that's heard the Kansas City yes. uh, uh, bootleg. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Kansas City tape has, you know, been played in every tour bus in the country, and it's just a complete meltdown, an artist losing his shit absolutely entirely in front of an audience that is turning on him. And uh, <laughs> But the fact of the matter was that Kansas City tape really wasn't that much different than the other tapes. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, like, I'm getting more. I'm really intrigued by this gig, and I'm thinking, man, there's no way I can fuck this up. You know, I mean, uh, you know, because <laughs> uh, it was dreadful. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just the truth. You know, and if he was standing right here, as long as he wasn't armed, I would, uh, I would say the same thing. So these were board tapes that they yeah, sent you. Yeah, board tapes in more ways than one. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I went through all this stuff. I took it very seriously at the time. And uh, we rehearsed for a week, five days. We went over all the, you know, the hits and a few curveballs. And enough that the band, by the end of the week, it was like high fives all around. 
I mean, you know, they were just like, we love you. Hank's going to love you. This is, you know, we've never sounded better. Yeah, it's just, it was very smooth. Lunch, you know, it was fun. We just felt like, it, and on top of that, the, the bass player, I think his name was Ray, uh, just as it somehow happens, chemically, we worked. It just felt like, oh, that's a bass player that I can work with, you know. It just seemed like we had some some mojo or whatever. Uh, so there was, you know, everything was really looking good. I even went out and bought, I think I bought a Franklin Rebels, high school Rebels football <laughs> shirt that I could <laughs> represent my Rebel pride, you know, uh, being from the south of England and everything. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, he was not a rehearsal. I don't even, I'm not even sure, like I said, I'm not even sure what he knew, you know, really. Uh, he knew he'd fired somebody probably for a few hours. He remembered that he had fired somebody. Do you mind saying what the what the gig paid well i you know it was up there i, I gotta say uh, i think it was a, about 800 a show at oh. that point so we were talking about you know a, a, <laughs> a substantial uh increase in in uh in pay for me from what i've been i could put up with a lot of bo cephas for that that's right of bring it you know bring <laughs> him and reba too you know so yeah i was i was ready yeah Did you get to meet or have any interaction with Merle Kilgore? Yes. Yeah, I actually knew Merle Kilgore a little bit because he's a Shreveporter. You know, and I, I spent some time in, in Shreveport, Louisiana, and, you know, Merle is from there and a legend, you know. Oh, no, he's a legend in Nashville, too. Of course. Can you but, tell people a little uh, yeah, bit about who he is? Uh, yeah, I'm, well, he, he, he managed Hank, but he was a songwriter, I think, uh, originally. But he was a successful songwriter and publisher and just general music business entrepreneur, I think, before he took on. He, he's had Hank for a long time. He gave up his own career yeah, to man, take yeah. a, to manage Hank. Yeah, I think it was yeah. one of the only people that Bo Cephas still trusted. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. Well, he was all thumbs up. And I'd, I'd been the drummer on the Louisiana Hayride, so that the Shreveport, he, of course, has a long history with that show. So... It's all good. I mean, <laughs> all this stuff is, is like just, you know, I'm just thinking this is really coming together, you know. Uh, I think I might have even told Merle that I was really wanting to bring more of a kind of Bozier strip, which the Bozier strip in, outside of Shreveport is famous live music and uh, strip club uh, area. Kind of it serviced the Barksdale Air Force Base there for years, but very, very seedy, neon, on the outskirts of town. Everybody who's anybody in the world of R&B and country has played there. Uh, so um, I, I'd, I had done a lot of work out there and a lot of very seedy, gnarly, like, you know, uh, kind of clubs. And uh, so I actually meant to, mentioned to him that I was really going to try to bring a Bozier Strip vibe to it. And he thought that was really funny, you know. So I, I, uh, I felt like, man, this is... Who would have thought it, you know, raised in New Orleans, playing R&B my whole life, and the gig that I was meant to play was Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I get the call. I get a call, you know, meet the tour bus, you know, where else? Shoney's, you know, uh, which is long gone on Demumbrian. <laughs> oh, it was down to, by Music Row? Yeah, yeah okay. you know, you, any given... Used to be there like six or eight tour bus. You had to try to figure out which one was yours, you know. Uh, so yeah, I met the tour bus uh, down there at Shoney's and uh, and got on a bus that was, you know, I mean, I'd been on some buses at this point, but this was a bus, you know. This was a bus. I mean, I think it, you know, it it, it was fully adorned and 
Hank Jr. splendor, you know, with winged Hank things on the wall and 40, you know, 45 pistols crossed on, you know, the hang your coat on, that, that you know, that kind of, you know, full Western kitsch. Uh, and we did the gig, and it was not any gig. You know, it wasn't like we got to start out small. We went straight to the Astrodome. The Houston Astrodome. The Houston Astrodome <laughs> for the Houston Livestock Show, which is fucking huge. And what I didn't know until I walked into the Astrodome that day was that Hank has a revolving stage. Like, things weren't confused enough. So, you know, you're in the middle of a revolving stage in the Astrodome. Uh, the smell of bullshit wafting through the air, you know, more ways than one. I mean, it just, you know, it was a fucking livestock show. And, and I'm, you know, I was, so it was a real, it was a, but, I, you know, I, I took a half a Xanax. I was ready to go. Uh, yeah, so uh, backstage, you know, uh, it, you know, it was very, very positive. I mean, they, these guys were getting ready. They knew, I think they felt confident that they were going to get to do a really, you know, it was going to be something different, you know, a different kind of drummer than the guys that they'd had, which were more, I would call them, you know, heavy metal kind of drummer. Uh, so it was, uh, I don't remember it backstage being particularly plush, but I remember uh, forgoing the Franklin Rebels football jersey for a for a more uh, conservative uh, button-down, you know, uh, pearl butter buttoned Western shirt and a coat. And uh, I remember thinking I looked okay, you know. And, uh, I was probably about 20 or 30 pounds lighter back then, so I had a little more rock cred. You know, all your time in New Orleans, this was probably a big deal to be able to go over to Houston and play the Astrodome. Might not have been the situation you'd always dreamed of playing the Astrodome, but that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, when I was a kid, I grew up listening to the Astros on New Orleans radio. I mean, uh, the Lastros, you know, uh, Cesar Cedeno, you know. I mean, I, I loved those guys. Uh, they, they were my favorite baseball team. So I'd never seen a game uh, to Astrodome, but I'd driven by the thing, and you know, and, and it wasn't like dome stadiums were on every corner, you know, back then either. This was a this was a, a thing. Was it, I think it was the first one, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. Okay, I remember the movie The Bees. Yes, where <laughs> they drove right. the Volkswagen covered with bees <laughs> into the Astrodome, turned yeah. on the air conditioning, and yeah. killed the bee. <laughs> yeah, well, I wish that that would have been a great night for it when I was there. We just had cows. <laughs> <laughs> We did a show. I have my notes. The crew was fantastic. Everybody pat me on the back. It's going to be great. And, I, you know, before I know it, oh, up to this point, I've not met Bocephus. There was no, like, here's the new drummer. You know, here's the new guy. You Welcome, you know, don't do this, do this. None of that. Just, like, you know, suddenly he's on stage with me, and, I, and I'm playing, you know, whatever. I can't even remember what he started with. It's the one he always starts with. But anyway, uh, we, uh, we play the gig, and, and lo and behold, it actually feels pretty good, you know? I mean, it really does. It's like, this is what this band needs, you know? It doesn't need, you know, double kick drums and gongs and 25 toms or whatever the guy had. It just needs, it needs you know, Stan Lynch. It needs someone, you know, laying it down, rebel style, you know? And uh, So I had my three cymbals and my four drums, and uh, I think I might have even added a drum. But uh, it all seemed to be going swimmingly. But at one point... Hank, who, who likes to uh, play all the instruments on stage, he's even got a song about it. He likes to play steel, and he'll play bass, and, you know, funk out, and he'll play, you know, leads, and, and, uh, and it, you know, he likes to play the drums. And so at one point, he, 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 he looked at me kind of funny. I, I couldn't really figure out what was going on. At the time, I thought maybe that he had just now realized 
that he had a new drummer. I thought it was entirely, <laughs> I thought it was entirely possible that in the haze of whatever, he had forgotten that he fired the other guy and that there was a new guy coming on. And that, so that sort of looked like sort of the shock of recognition, you know, like, oh, you know, that's not the guy. That's what I thought it was. And so we played the rest of the show, end of the show. I mean, the band couldn't get me fast enough. Drinks in the bar, you know, oh my God, you know, we, that, that might be one of the best shows we've ever done. And I'm, I'm seriously not making this, not just a... Because I can screw up shit. You know, I'm not trying to be braggy here, but it seemed like it was working. They, they were thrilled. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we get getting, you know, that I saw you yeah, yeah, hammered that night with the band. It's a big night. Get on the bus. I feel horrible uh, the next day. We're, but we're going back to Nashville. It's just a one-off. Anyway, so we get back. Uh, we're, we're driving on the road back. And I see my buddy. who I, I knew the road manager from way back. He's on the phone. He's talking. He's looking very serious. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Talking very seriously. Hangs up the phone. And then he says, Paul, you know, let's go in the back. I, I need to talk to you. So by now we're about two hours out of Nashville. So uh, we go in the back and he goes, uh, man, I'm sorry, but uh, but uh, Hank's decided that, that not, you know, that, that it didn't work out. But, you know, thanks. Thanks for all the hard work. Uh, uh, but it didn't work out. And bearing in mind, I have not yet met Hank Williams Jr. <laughs> he didn't come up to me and say, dude, great, or dude, ooh, you know, nothing, you know. Uh, so... Uh, so I said, well, what do you say? You know, uh, what, what was their comment? Or, but he, he, all he said was, drop him off. And that's it. And that's the last I heard of that. You know, if I ever write a book, it's going to be called Drop Him Off. You know, but that was it. And the end of story, you know, I was done just like that. And it probably, after I thought, I mean, you know, it felt like I let my family down. I let my new buddies in the band down. I'd let Bocephus down. And uh, so I was absolutely heartbroken. And I got a call from a friend of mine. A couple months had gone by, my, my, my guitar player buddy. We were finally, finally getting a chance to process this because I was hiding. You know, I was really, it was a big deal. I'd been fired twice in a row in the second time after only one gig. Uh, so we got to talking, and he goes, well, you know what happened. Don't. When Hank looked back at you, he was going to come back and play the drums, but he realized you were left-handed, <laughs> and he <laughs> and he wasn't going to be able to play a left-handed set of drums. Uh, so that that recognition <laughs> that I had imagined was something entirely different um, than what I suspected. And, of course, at that point, I'm thinking, well, hell, I could have set up another set of drums for Hank <laughs> if I'd known $800 a night, I'll set up, you know, six or eight drum sets, you know. Uh, but, um, but no, that was the deal. And I guess, you know, he as soon as he realized that he wasn't going to get to come back there and jam on my kit, that, that uh, God, I was not going to do. How many people can say they've been fired by Bo Cephas for being left-handed? <laughs> maybe one of the ex-wives or something i don't know but oh god yeah it was i mean it was heartbreaking of course and now of course i've you know i've been in nashville since 1987 uh, i have no feelings left to hurt you know i don't care you know nothing you can do that's gonna hurt me at this point. and uh so i guess that's something you know <laughs> well, i appreciate you sharing the story with me oh it's my pleasure tell everyone <laughs> i don't care Beware of those both Cephas games. Yeah, yeah, watch out. Yeah, yeah, watch out for both. I don't think it's paying eight hundred dollars a show anymore.
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Paul for inviting me into his living room here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Paul at griftersguide.wordpress.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.